Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Out of the Cave podcast. This podcast, you, you could say it's about a lot of things, but really the real purpose of this podcast is a way for me to have conversations with people I find interesting and want to speak with. I've always been interested in what it means to be a man, personality, relationships, morality, the existence of God, and a bunch of other topics in that same vein. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations and take something away like I will. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. We're on. Dr. Hansen, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, it's been a, uh, on my mind for a while. I, I had you as a student at the University of Dallas, and I took a Western Civilization class with you. And what really struck me and that I took away from that class was how small events in history can lead to great changes in the future. Um, one of the things that I took away from that was, you know, the communist uh, revolution came from some dukes and then before that the Protestant Reformation. So how, how do, do you see, do you think we're in one of these, these moments in history right now? Right. So, I mean, probably the, the three dates that stick out in my mind for, for the rise of Marxist ideology and the communist revolution are probably 1848, the, the writing of Karl Marx's communist manifesto, uh, which is a very short document. Um, it's short and easy to read. It's, you know, everybody should at least have read it so that they know what's in it. So that's 1848. The first time that you really see Marx's ideas coming into effect is in the, the um, 1870 Paris Commune, um, when the working class of Paris rise up and kind of turn Paris into a little revolutionary stronghold, a kind of city, city revolutionary stronghold for communism. And, you know, that's, that's fairly quickly put down in France. And then 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution, just very few uh, Marxist ideologues, very few Marxist revolutionaries, um, take advantage of a crisis situation in Russia where the Russian economy and the Russian military are on the, the, the brink of collapse um, because of their, their long participation in World War I and fighting in the trenches. And in some sense, neither the economy nor the population could stand it any longer. And so there's a revolutionary moment um, it's not necessarily a Marxist revolutionary moment, right? Um, but Marxist revolutionaries take advantage of the, the distress um, of the Ru Russian population in order to turn Russia into the first sort of communist experiment. So those are the three kind of major dates in the, the rise of Marxist ideology and, um, and communism as something that actually controls a state but one of the things that maybe is worth reflecting on is that Marx never thought that um, communism would come about in Russia. Uh, because for Marx, you needed an advanced industrial society um, in which there were no more peasants left. The peasants had been driven into the cities looking for work and become industrial workers with no property of their own no land, um, no, no craft skills, no guilds, and that that exploitation of the workers would lead to the, to the communist uprising. So Marx was really talking about Germany. Um, <laughs> at, that, at that time, when Marx was writing in 1848, the most advanced industrial country in the world was Germany. 
um, and everyone admired the German economy and how much, um, how advanced Germany was. And that, that continued on into the 20th century, that kind of admiration for, for, um, for Germany's um, efficiency, right? And so the, the idea of spreading revolution to all countries and particularly to all capitalist countries is central to, um, to the communist program. And sorry, this is to, to kind of go off a, a little bit, but I think a lot of people, a lot of people don't know that much about the Cold War because I teach history. I'm not necessarily blaming anyone, <laughs> right? But the Cold War is always at the end of the semester, right? A semester that begins with having to cover World War I, World War II. World War II is a massive event. It takes up most of your semester just studying that, right? And you, then you got to cover the, the civil rights movement. And a lot of times you don't really get to covering the, the Cold War um, the way that it should be covered, right? And so I just want to draw attention to three different elements of the Cold War. So there's the Cold War in Europe, where after Russia had established domination over the entirety of Eastern Europe, each Eastern European country attempted to escape from communist domination at one point or another, right? So in the 1950s, it's the Hungarians, and you have the Hungarian uprising. In the 1960s, it's the Czechs, right? Czech, the Czechoslovaks under, um, under um, Václav Havel. Um, finally, in the 1970s, it's the Poles with the Solidarity Movement, um, and that actually does bring down the Soviet Union with some support from the Pope, the President, and the Prime Minister, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, and John Paul II. So some people think of the Cold War as something that happened in Europe, right? Soviet communist domination of Eastern Europe, of the Eastern European bloc, and then little by little, the peoples of Eastern Europe, right, revolted and eventually got their independence and tried to adopt liberal democracy and a free enterprise economy, right? But it's also important to see that the Cold War is a global event, right, that the tension between liberal democratic and capitalist America and totalitarian and communist Soviet Union, although neither of them wanted to go to war with each other because they both had nuclear weapons and this would be mutual assured destruction, right? Um, they didn't want to go to war with each other, but they certainly fought proxy wars all over the globe, right? So they had their their fingers in almost every event of the 20th century, right? Whether you're looking at the Korean War, the Vietnam War, a struggle in Angola, um, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, the Middle East, the Iranian Revolution, right? You name it, um, whatever, wherever there was a hot war, instead of a cold war, you would find Soviet weapons, Soviet advisors, Soviet money, and American weapons, and American advisors, and American money, right? So they fought proxy wars all over the globe, right? Um, and you really can't understand any 20th century struggle without understanding the way in which it was a tension between two different ways of life, right? The American way of life, liberal democratic capitalist, and, um, and the, the communist totalitarian way of life, right? 
Thirdly, <laughs> and this is where hopefully I get a little bit closer to your, um, you know, to, to your question and kind of what's going on now, is that thirdly, um, this was a, a culture war, right? This was a culture war. The KGB and the Communist International were committed to spreading revolution all over the world. And they did so openly and covertly. And so a very large part of Cold War history is covert measures, right? Um, is what the Soviets refer to as active measures, which is creating communist front organizations, which are not explicitly communist, which often have kind of innocuous names or admirable titles and, and programs that many people across the political spectrum would espouse, right? But they're front organizations. And the real movers and shakers behind them are in fact paid by the KGB, right? Are put in place by the Communist International. So front organizations, you know, paid informants, obviously espionage, but putting in um, people of influence in universities, people of influence in, in newspapers, right? And that program of, of active measures, of, of active measures um, trying to actually convert, right? Um, other countries to, to look at history and to look at the life of their own country through the lens of Marxist ideology was highly successful. Um, so much so that um, I would say that in 1989, the end of the Cold War, the United States of America clearly won economically. And the United States clearly won militarily. But I think that we lost culturally. Right? We lost the media and the universities and the school systems um, to people who had been trained in Marxist ideology. And so that's 50 years ago. Um, I don't find it surprising that we are where we are today um, when for 50 years, the organs of cultural influence have been in the hands of Marxists. And anyone who's gone to graduate school in any subject, whether it's sociology or psychology or literature or history or politics, will tell you, right, that the dominant ideology in, in any graduate school across the United States of America is, is Marxism, even theology departments, right? Benedict XVI says in his memoir um, that the theology department that he was working in in 1968 was taken over in a putsch by a small group of Marxists who were pushing liberation theology, right? Which is the idea that Christ came to liberate the working class from the, the cap their capitalist overlords, right? instead of saving us from sin and, um, and damnation. So I, I'm not surprised that we are where we are. And maybe just to be a little bit more pointed, it is really typical that an organization like Black Lives Matter 
has a name that everyone will sign on to. Who is going to disagree with Black Lives Matter, right? With the statement Black Lives Matter. Like, who is going to disagree with that, right? Everyone can get on board with that. But you have to do a little bit of research in order to find out that the founders explicitly espouse Marxism. You have to do a little bit of research to find out that they're pushing the transgender agenda, you know, queer theory and all of, all of this kind of thing. You actually have to do some work to find out what is behind the front, right? And that's typical. I mean, the Russians have been doing this since Catherine the Great, right? The Potemkin village. You've heard of Potemkin villages, right? Where um, Catherine the Great's advisors didn't want her to know how much poverty there was in the, in the, in the villages. And so they would put up these, you know, they look like Hollywood front um, villages that looked very prosperous when she was coming through in her carriage. And then when she was gone, they would take it all back down. Um, called Potemkin Villages, right? Well, the, the KGB and the Communist International were very good at establishing a multitude of front organizations. And then all of these front organizations would create a coalition, right? So that it wouldn't look like it was one mover and shaker. It's a coalition of various and sundry people with the same ideas, right? I mean, who would have thought that, for example, during the, the Cold War, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, the World Council of Churches. The World Council of Churches, right? Sounds like a great organization, right? Um, was, you know, infiltrated by the, by the KGB, right? And following their, their program and their policies. So I think that if people were more educated about the Cold War era, they would actually be clearer on what exactly we are facing in our current um, cultural and political moment. Yeah, it's a really scary idea, like what you were saying, how we lost the culture war. And you see it kind of in, in young people, like the friends I grew up with, I grew up in Massachusetts, and my friends, uh, you know, in high school, pretty, you know, standard people. And, and now when I talk to them, they, they definitely is a slant towards those ideas. Um, and a lot of them went to state schools. And it's kind of a, uh, having conversations with them, especially talking about the, the current politics of the day. Yeah, like a term like Black Lives Matter. I don't disagree with the term Black Lives Matter. But yeah, when you look at the organization and they talk about, um, the, one that, the one main quandary I have is they want to dismantle what the nuclear family is. The nuclear family meaning father, wife, kids, right? And that seems like a, like who would want to do away with that? That seems like a pretty good thing. Um, and, and something that, you know, the black community needs more of, right? Like the single motherhood rate is pretty high. So, yeah. Now, one needs to um, read the Communist Manifesto to see that Marx himself explicitly objected to the family, right? Explicitly objected to the family, the church, and the nation. For the revolution to come about, people need to think of themselves just as the oppressed. I can't think of myself as a Hanson, right? You can't think of yourself as Roberts, right? Um, you can't think of yourself as a Methodist or as a Catholic. 
You can't think of yourself as someone from Massachusetts or from Texas. Local identity, national identity, family identity, religious identity, right? Is, you know, for Marx, the opiate of the masses. It makes you think that you have anything at stake, right? In the current system, when in fact you are just 100% oppressed and your only hope is violent social revolution. So attacks on the family are not, um, they're not just concomitant <laughs> with Marxism, right? They're part of the Marxist ideology, right? Now, one of the things that the Black Lives Matter statement said that I thought was very interesting was they, they refer to it as the um, Western prescribed nuclear family. Um, so if I can break that down a little bit and look at that from one angle and then another angle, right? So on the one hand, right, to call the nuclear family man, woman, child, Western prescribed is bizarre, absurdist, right? Um, because obviously um, human beings procreate sexually. Um, you, even if you're gonna, you know, reproduce in a petri dish, right? Using an egg donor and a, and a you know, um, a surrogate mother, you still need a man and a woman to have a baby. So, that, so to say that it's Western prescribed, that there would be a man, a woman, and a baby, right? It's to say that somehow the West invented that is like mind-numbingly, mind-bogglingly absurd, right? <laughs> I mean, I would like to, you know, like, you know, as a, as a Westerner, I would like to claim that we invented that, but I just don't think that's true, okay? The nuclear family, man, woman, and child, right, means that the man and woman have equal status of responsibility for that child, right? The child does not belong to the father as it would in a purely patriarchal tribe where women and children are slaves of the man, which is the way a lot of cultures have functioned for a long time in human history, right? Or the children belong to the mother and the man takes no social responsibility whatsoever for the children that he's begotten. And they're, they're the responsibility of the woman and she gets no help just despite the fact that you know during her pregnancy, during lactation, she needs help. So is there something wrong with, let's call it the Christian idea, right? That when a man says, I do, and a woman says, I do, that the freedom of the man and the freedom of the woman is respected in law as binding them mutually to the care for those children. That's a bad idea? Uh, you know, hey, you know, I, I think that, you know, any system that, that, um, that respects women's freedom in the construction of a family, right? that holds a man to his free statement, right? Um, that respects human freedom is actually a way of upholding human dignity. Um, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a great family construct and I don't think we should just let it go by the wayside um, easily. Yeah, it's really scary, this whole, this whole idea of 
that the family is something so simple and so like basic to each of us and something I think we all want to have like nobody wants to have divorced parents or or have a broken marriage or like you know, you know nobody wants that like they're painful things and that's I think that's the reason why a lot of people don't even get married today is they're, they're so afraid of that happening um, that they that they never commit to that to that agreement because okay I can just leave I have an exit you know I don't have to be to hurt in that way and it's almost expected these days but on another note you touched on something there what do you think then that respectively the freedoms of men and women have in raising a family or or in society well i am definitely a big proponent of the idea of complementarity that you know, men come in all shapes and sizes. Um, they come in all personality types. Women come in all shapes and sizes and all personality types. But there are definitely certain things about their role in, in reproduction right, and the raising of children, which prescribe certain roles for them. And I think that um, the woman's ability to bond with a child who she has carried for nine months um, and breastfed um, for maybe another year or so <laughs> gives women a particular uh, capacity for social bonding. Right? Um, and that the woman has a role in educating the man into that bond. Um, which is harder for the man to feel, um, you know. And, and this is this is a hormonal thing. This is this is profoundly biological. It's not something that you can just rewire, right? You can deprive a child of it, right? Um, of that early bonding with another person. Um, but I I think that that's very much at the heart of what happens to the woman, what happens to the child, um, right? Normally, naturally, in reproduction. And I think as well that um, when women and children are, right, when a woman is, is about to have a child, is, has just had a child, that she's in a position of great vulnerability. And, you know, the fact that the, the man can protect and provide for them when they're in that moment of vulnerability right, is, is a great social good. And so to, to raise men to be protectors and providers um, and to raise uh, women to appreciate their capacity for nurturing social relations does not deprive either of their dignity. It's an acknowledgement of who we are. We're a body-soul unity, right? We're not just sort of abstract, um, vaporous, uh, <laughs> vaporous abstract entities, right? Um, we are body soul unities, right? Um, our soul is the form of our body. Um, our soul expresses itself through bodily enactment, right? And so to acknowledge our sexual identity is actually one of those really basic things, right? You know, okay, Western culture, right? Let's hear, let's hear it for Western culture, right, for a moment here. Um, you know, University of Dallas students are so ridiculously 
blessed and fortunate and lucky, right? They get to go to Delphi in Greece and they get to climb up Mount Parnassus at sunrise, right? Mount Parnassus where Apollo, the god of music and song, you know, dances with the muses of the liberal arts, right? And they get to go to the, the beautiful white shining temple, right? In, in Delphi, right? The temple of Apollo. And of the temple of Apollo, right? The inscription, right? What the gods had to say to man, right? 2,000 years before Christ, right? Was very basic. Know thyself. Know thyself, right? If you know that you are a body-soul unity, right? If you know that you both have reason and free will, but you also have a bodily identity, well, heck, get to know yourself, right? Understand what it means to be a man. Understand what it means to be a woman, right? Just, you know, to, to refuse to acknowledge, that's like me refusing to acknowledge that I was, you know, born in Chicago in the 1970s. Like, I mean, look, you have an identity, right? Don't put on goggles and play like, you know, fantasy, you know, you know, what are these, you know, alternative reality games or whatever, right? Um, accept who you are, right? Um, this is, it's the beginning of being a mature adult is to say, you know what? There are a lot of stuff in my life that, you know, I wish wasn't so, but it is so, right? Um, I wish I was laid back and phlegmatic and, you know, um, didn't have a didn't have a hot temper, but told me that I had temper tantrums within the first two months of being born. Right, um, that's not something that's going to go away. It's something I got to deal with for the rest of my life. Right, um, somebody else, you know, they might be super happy that they're sanguine, um, but the problem is they can't focus on anything, and they're just like sanguine from here to there and there to there, and like paying attention to all the people and social life and social life and Instagram and Twitter and blah blah blah, and they just can't focus, right? You know, well, hey, guess what? Um, you know, so you were born in Massachusetts in in the in the 1990s as a sanguine. Um, get to know yourself. Like, work with your strengths, right? Work with your strengths. Fight against your weaknesses. But um, you know, but life. Life on Earth is short, um, and to live in a fantasy world where you're not who you are is just really stupid. Um, so anyway, yeah, I'm a big fan of complementarity and, and thinking about what complementarity means personally and socially um, for us. Hey, wait, I'll throw in politically. I don't believe in the draft for women, so I just thought I'd say that. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. I, I like a lot of what you just said. Um, well, we told that was a total different tangent. Uh, I want to go back to what you were talking about, um, the cultural war in America. How do you think we, we bring it back? Because it does seem like what you were saying, these, these Marxist ideas have infiltrated the university system. A lot of young people, um, both politically and, and socioeconomically, like they believe in the ideas of Marx. How do you think then we bring the culture back? Right, uh, I think the, the term that Trump has for his campaign is super loaded too, and a lot of people it makes them pretty angry. Right, make America great again, and uh, you know Black Lives Matter has a point. Like, when was America ever great? You know, we had slavery from the beginning and all these things. Um, but I think there is something really great about America, 
but how can we bring the culture, you know, back to um, these these ideas of America, these ideas of freedom, liberty, pursuit of happiness? Big question. Private schooling, religious schooling. Um, Got to get your kids out of the public schools. Right. Um, never give money to a state school or to an Ivy League school right, um, that espouses these ideas. Do your homework about schools. Don't kid yourself, right? You know, sure, you know, if Harvard or Princeton's gonna give you a full ride, that's one thing, right? Go, you get the prestige, and you can do your thing. But you gotta educate yourself on the side, right? Um, but for the vast majority of people, right, don't study the humanities or the social sciences at any old dang school out there, right? Go get your engineering degree and read Joseph Pieper and Christopher Dawson right, on the side and educate yourself in your faith and, and in, a culture of, in a culture of life, in a culture of human dignity. I know that's really hard to say, um, especially for Catholics because we're trying to balance um, um, being open to having as many children as God wants to give us, right? Um, and having enough money to educate them, um, <laughs> um, even though we're taxed for these public schools, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of charter schools, school choice, homeschooling, Catholic schooling. I just keep going back to this idea, right? I just keep going back to this idea. Poverty-stricken Irish immigrants, right? 1845, the potato famine, right? And the poor Irish start coming over, right? After the Civil War, they build Ellis Island with the Statue of Liberty, the Irish are still coming, right? Uh, 50 years later, the Irish are still coming, right? Um, the Irish are still coming, right? <laughs> They're just, the, like, you know, there's that saying, you know, Jesus says somewhere in the gospel, right, that um, the, the poor you have always with you, you know? Well, I say the, the, the Irish who are the poor are always with you, right? There are fewer Irish Catholics in Ireland than there are Catholics in LA, right? Ireland migrated en masse to the United States of America. Okay, what does this have to do with anything? These people were poor, right? They were so poor that they couldn't even buy land in the Midwest, like the Germans, okay? They got jobs right there in the port cities that they came into, right? They took, you know, jobs in the, in the mills, they took jobs in the factories and the ports, right? Right there, right? Um, Irish working class. Um, look, they had no money, but they created the parochial school system. They were being taxed for public schools, but they created the parochial school system. Okay. Now Catholics are CEOs. Now Catholics are middle class. Now Catholics are upper class, right? Why can Catholics not fund good Catholic schools? Well, um, maybe they still trust 
You know, a lot of the diocesan and parochial schools that exist and don't realize to what extent they've been taken over by the same curriculum as the local public school. Or maybe it's because Notre Dame is the big white elephant in the living room of Catholic higher education that's soaking up like all the energy and money of Catholic higher ed, right? It's everybody's first choice because they've got a football team. Who doesn't want to be part of the fighting Irish, right? And then their second choice is a small Catholic school where they're actually teaching, you know, the, you know, Western civilization, the, you know, the value of the American founding and, and the Catholic faith, right? Um, so what we need are some, some visionary donors um, to start, you know, funding proper education. Um, that's what we can do is schools. Schools, schools, proliferate schools until they, until, you know, whatever next administration comes in with a scorched earth policy and destroys all grassroots roots efforts, right, um, from the get-go. Look, every, the French Revolution, 1789, they closed all the colleges in the country and confiscated all of their endowments. Gone, right? educational guillotine, right? That's what totalitarianism looks like, right? When they won't let you have any schools except the state schools. They won't let you go to any school except the school that speaks their Marxist ideology, right? So proliferate schools as, as long as it's possible. Just pro proliferate, right? Smaller schools, more local schools, more Catholic schools, more parent-run schools, right? Um, they're hard to run, you know? Um, they're hard to run, they're hard to fund. Um, lots of infighting um, amongst various and sundry different kinds of Catholics and kinds of people and you know some of them are some of them are you know all about doctrine and others you know want to want it to be sort of like literary and to inspire the imagination right and you know others are really gung-ho about you know civic culture and american patriotism and you know others are wary of you know the masonic founding and whatever you're like guys look don't lose track of where the enemy is right you you we've got to work together right to create schools, right? Schools are always at that weird conjunction point of family, nation, church, right? There, schools are schools are where families and church and nation come together, right? In order to educate the next generation. Um, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a teacher, so I guess I just recommended education as the as the um, as the solution, which sounds a little pathetic. But what can we do? Um. Yeah, I think it does start with education um, and conversations. But today, it seems like conversations are just so hard to have. People just are so stuck in their talking points, and like when you talk to them about about these issues, they 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 just start re, you know reiterating the line. Um, how do we, how do you think we get around that? How do we break through to the person that, like there's their, their human nature that, that, that wants the good, right? Yeah. I mean, I suppose you tell inspiring stories, right? And you ask them about their stories. Um, 
people's life stories tell the truth. Um, eventually the truth comes out when you start recounting what's been going on for you, right? Um, um, yeah, I, I definitely, uh, in some sense, I think getting to know the story of the rise of Nazism in Germany and the rise of communism in the Soviet Union and why so many people fled and came to America um, adds another aspect to the American story. So, yes, a large part of the American story is um, colonial settlement, which included the slave trade, um, the American founding, which included a compromise on the existence of slavery, and the American Civil War, which ended slavery, and then the Civil Rights Movement, which tried to remedy cultural and political, right? That's a big part of the American story. But another part of the American story are a lot of immigrants who came over after the colonial period, who did not have anything to do with slavery, their stories. Why were the Italians coming over? Why were Russian Jews coming over? Why were the Poles coming over? Why were Catholic Germans coming over to this country? What were they fleeing? Why did Cubans come here? Why did the Vietnamese come here? What were they trying to get away from? Right? That is a large part of the American story and helps us to understand what is valuable about American culture that makes immigrants want to come here. Right? We are a country that imports people. We do not export people. Right? We import people. Right? There are people who want to come here. And the vast majority of the people who want to come here come here for the freedom to raise their family, get a job, buy a house, and worship um, the way they, they want to be free to worship. Um, is that a bad thing? Like, is that not something that America can be proud of? Um, you know, so I, I think we just have to acknowledge that our history, there are undoubtedly lights and shadows. Um, but there's not just one story in America. There are millions of stories in America and they all deserve to be heard. And we can't just, um, you know, shut out all of those other stories. Um, and, you know, again, I'm, I'm a teacher and I know that, you know, you only have so much time in a semester, right? Um, you know, and you, you've got to do justice to the complexity of, of the story. And at the University of Dallas, um, American Civilization One taught in the fall, American Civilization Two taught in the spring, American Civilization One, Every fall, we read Frederick Douglass's narrative life of an American slave. And we discuss from the point of view of someone who experienced slavery himself, the horror of slavery 
and the great good of human freedom. And every spring semester in AMSIV 2, we read Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail. And so, I mean, we do attend to those very important stories in the beginning of American history, the story of slavery, in the, the second half of American history, um, the civil rights movement. And, you know, as I say, um, the story is enormously complex and we have to try to teach all of it. I mean, if you guys want, um, I'm perfectly happy to, to teach 24-7 um, and get rid of every other class taught in, you know, at the University of Dallas and I'll just teach American history all the time, every day to all the students. And that way we can deal with everything in all of its complexity, right? Um, you know, <laughs> but, you know, you got to do the best, the best you can. Yeah. Well, me doing the best I can, just like a, a semester a podcast has a limited amount of time. And uh, yes. we're talking about stories. So this has been a kind of common theme to ask people about their stories. What is your story, Dr. What is my story? My story is that I was a Cold War, John Paul II generation kid, right? I lived through the end of the Cold War and it really marked who I am, right? Um, I come from a Polish um, Catholic family background. Um, my grandfather, Leroy Wachowski, shortened to walk because of all of the prejudice against Poles um, in Chicago, you know, gave us a, a strong, um, a strong family faith tradition. And um, when John Paul II became Pope, he became very much our family Pope, right? I've read all of his encyclicals starting in eighth grade. My first encyclical was on the dignity and vocation of women by John Paul II. Um, hence my attachment to the complementarity of the sexes and the, and the particular gifts of women. I, I went to Poland um, in, 1990, when John Paul II held the first World Youth Day in Poland, it was the first time that anyone from the Soviet Eastern European bloc was able to go to the World Youth Day. And Americans were celebrities. Everywhere we went with our American flag, everyone wanted to take pictures with us because we represented freedom, um, freedom from communism, right? And I remember um, John Paul II's voice, and I'll, I'll stop here because I know I tend to be long-winded, but I remember John Paul II's voice, his very distinctive uh, Polish accent, right, when he was speaking English, um, speaking to young Americans in the, in the Rocky Mountains when the World Youth Day was in Denver. And he told us, if you look at nature, with a pure heart, you will see God. <laughs> so maybe, maybe we young Americans need to rediscover nature. Right? Um, John Paul II, in all of his encyclicals, likes to go back to Genesis, into a reading of Genesis, right? where man is made in the image and likeness of God, male and female, he created them, gave them dominion over the fish of the sea and the and the, the cattle of the earth, right? Um, that, and, and of course, John Paul II is, is just imitating Jesus Christ when he does that, um, because Jesus used to love to say, in the beginning, it was not so. <laughs> in the beginning, it was not so, right? Go back to your nature, right? Reflect on your nature, know thyself, right? 
reflect on nature. And yeah, so that, I mean, my story really is um, falling in love with John Paul II. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll begin and end my story with that. <laughs> All right. Before we go, um, since this podcast is geared towards men, I want to ask you, what do you think it is, uh, or what do you think men's role is in today's world, like in society? What is the role of a man? Really to cultivate an almost mystical respect for women, perhaps by um, reflecting on the love that their own mothers showed them, um, perhaps by developing a devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, but um, to develop a, a gut reaction, a reflex action, where anything that, that portrays women as an object of, of sexual pleasure would um, you know, bring, bring the bile of anger <laughs> into their mouth, right? I mean, we have, we have to be really countercultural, um, and it's everywhere. Um, it's just, it saturates our culture. Um, and so to rediscover, you know, the beauty of a small child, um, the, the incredible memory of, of a mother's love, um, and to let that awaken us to the sacred so that we don't lose our sense of the sacred, and just think of everything as kind of commercial or everything as fantasy or everything as technology, right? Um, I think that that's cultivating respect. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I would say. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, I've enjoyed it too. Awesome. Well, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Yeah. That was my guest, Dr. Susan Hansen of the University of Dallas. We got into some of the heated politics of the day, remembered the Cold War, and talked about the complementarity of the sexes. I hope you got something out of this episode as I did, and I look forward to having you back for the next one. Thank you.